I've talked about some of these things before as far as my experiences growing up, but honestly, there's a lot of new people here, and so sometimes a preacher has to dust off the old stories and go, hey, here's this one again. Um, so let me just ask it this way. Uh, and by the way, this is one of those sermons, I want you to know up front, I really have no clue how this is going to go this morning. Like a lot of times I'm writing and I'm like, oh, I think this is, I know this is going to go. I don't really know, like I don't mean it's going to end badly, but I'm just saying I'm not really sure just yet, so we'll, we'll see. But how many of you, um, if you're under 25, you will not know this, or this is not happening to you. If you're over 25, you probably so. How many of you have ever given or received a Christian tract before? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Man, that's a lot of you. Hey, how many of you are the ones giving it? Okay, just wondering. Okay, me too. Okay. So uh, I used, I was a part of this evangelical Jesus culture where you like really needed to give people these tracts because they, they could go to hell the next day. Like that was kind of the understanding and that was the, and it was all at a really, I think a, as good a place as I could, but some of these tracts were weird and I used to stuff them in um, upperclassmen's lockers when I was in high school. I was a freshman. And uh, I would just go to seniors' lockers and stuff tracts in there, like all the people who were partying. And I'm like, you're going to hell, and you need to read this tract. And so that's, that's what I did. And I was, I was thinking, um, I would probably have a couple of these to show you. This is, uh, this is one maybe you've seen. Anybody ever done this as a tip before? You better not raise your hand. I have. Yeah. This, this happened, like you leave like a dollar bill as a, as a tip on the table, and the reality is when you open it up, it tells you, disappointed? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> Satan also deceives, which, just pause for a minute. The person who gave the track just associated themselves with Satan. <laughs> we didn't really think through this track very well. But Jesus saves, given in the spirit of friendship. So many things are not okay with this, okay? Um, here's another one that maybe you saw. How many of you love Monopoly? Yeah? How about this one? Get out of hell free. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See back for details. Like, you know, the, the deal could expire in a week or so, that kind of thing. Like, read, read the fine print. And, and so, it's like, could you imagine playing Monopoly and giving that to somebody? Oh, man, no wonder we don't have friends. Okay, so um, now here's the thing. Before we go to the next one, hold on a second. Now, these are simple. Like these, like, you know, front and back kind of thing. But how many of you have ever heard of chick tracks? And this is not a derogatory term, okay? Just so you know, be with me. Bear with me. Okay, chick tracks were started by a guy named Jack Chick, who was a cartoonist uh, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and eventually... He came to know Christ, and then he's like, I want to communicate the gospel in like cartoon form and kind of more longer form. So he came up with these ideas that, you know, every situation that comes up, um, whether from liberalism to uh, Satanism to you name it, um, he had a track for it, okay? Uh, and so this is one of his tracks. Uh, it's called The Nervous Witch. And uh, The Nervous Witch has uh, these 
two girls who are friends, and one of them is getting the other girl into the occult. Um, and so they're drawing like hexagons on the floor. And, but then she finds out that her uncle's coming home, and her uncle's like really this God-fearing man. And so they get really afraid. And so the girl who's trying to get the other girl into the occult tries to pray, and it's not working. And so this is the buildup in the track, because honestly, we could just read these tracks and not do the sermon, and you would have a great morning. But we're not going to do that. So here's the next one. Here's what happens. All right, so she has this moment where she's like, I need to pray and, and ask Jesus into my life. And then an hour later, she's talking to her uncle, and her uncle says, tell me, how did you get into the craft? And she says, through Harry Potter books. But we wanted the real power. Other books told us to call for spirit guides, and they came. And so the next slide shows us, they led us into stuff we found in the Harry Potter books, which... Don't read Harry Potter books, all right? Uh, tarot cards, Ouija boards, and crystal balls. Samantha, the Potter books open a doorway that will put untold millions of kids into hell. Uncle Bob, you don't know the half of it. Holly's dad is a preacher, and he likes Harry Potter stories, all right? I like Harry Potter stories. Drew loves Harry Potter stories. And he's preaching next week, so just, like, pay attention, because something could happen to you, all right? Hey, what about all that occultic junk in my room? Should I destroy it? Absolutely. And then the last slide here. Samantha, you'll need a Bible to read every day. A King James Bible. It's the only English version Satan hasn't messed with. Let's just stop there. Let's pray and end the sermon. Okay. I don't need to go on about this. This doesn't work, right? Can we agree? Maybe like if it works one in a million, but then can you really say that's a success rate to go with? And here's what I was wondering as I was reading all these tracks and things that I would hand out, things that were given to me. Why was I doing that? Maybe why were you doing that? Like what was the thing? Because it wasn't that we were going man, I really want to make this whole evangelical thing weirder so that 20 years down the road, people laugh at these things. No, you weren't doing that, neither was I. Something in me, something in you, something in this American culture where all this was kind of like a breeding ground, we had an assumption that we could sum up the gospel in maybe 250 characters, 240 characters. Maybe we could talk about it in these succinct ways and get across a message and can we just all be honest and say we're laughing because so much of this stuff is absurd. It's, it's what is a caricature of this space for people who aren't in this space. We look at this and go, oh, of course that isn't it. But it is. And it is what's happened. And it's a part of the culture we deal with today. And what we're looking at here in these sermons on... Um, on God speak, how to talk about God from scratch is we have all these hurdles and barriers that have been built up over time that we're having to deal with. Like there's not a clear doorway for people to interact with Jesus. It's filled with all kind of junk in front of it. And we're part of those problems because we've attempted to take something so big, so amazing, so huge, and so simple, and yet just make it... Um, 
almost obsolete by simplifying it in ways that we can't just through a few words and a few pictures, maybe a few tracks. That to communicate this big message of the gospel of who Jesus is, and that's what I want us to talk about this morning, is the gospel. About what is this thing that we say is so important, and yet we can try to sum it up in just a few pictures, and honestly, it's not that it's offensive in the right ways, it becomes almost obsolete in the worst ways possible. And we wonder why people don't want what we're talking about. And so we see these stories of Paul and Barnabas, and they're going through these different areas in the world, and they're trying to learn how to talk about God in the context where they are. And they get to this place, Antioch. There were a couple different places called Antioch. And they get to this place in Antioch, which had been further up in Greece. And they're communicating and talking to these people who are both Jewish and God-fearers. And so when we look at the text this morning, the best way I felt like we could kind of break this down is I have five things, five ways they're interacting with people and the gospel that I think are helpful for us. And it's not for us to copy exactly, because these are people in real places, in times not like ours, trying to interact with the culture at hand. And so it's not just let me just kind of rip off that line and use it in my life. We're going to have to use some engagement here of our minds and our hearts. But I think these five things can maybe carry well regardless, even for us today. So these are just kind of five observations we find here in Acts 13. The first is this. They waited until asked and had something to say. They waited until they were asked and then they had something to say. Let's read. It says, on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. That's important language. They sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, you, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, exclamation point. Listen to me. I think one of the assumptions we have, I, I think for us as Christians today, we live in a very dangerous, privileged world. Uh, you know, when we talk about privilege here in America, privilege is when you are not aware of the privilege that comes with just what you look like and the color of your skin. And there's so many, like one of the big things today is that white men have all this privilege and they don't recognize it. And they just assume they can just kind of speak wherever they want to speak and say things because people automatically want to listen to them. And we're finally having a correction within our culture to go, no, you don't always get to have that privilege. Sometimes you need to sit down and be humble, as some have helped us understand through their singing. Like, sometimes we need to sit down and be humble and listen. And I think for for American Christians, there's an assumption that we get to talk whenever we want to talk and say whatever we want to say and throw out whatever we want to throw out on Twitter um, or Instagram. And I think that's a very harmful way to live. 
I think we need to be a lot more aware of our privilege that we live in a privileged world of Christendom as evangelicals, if you identify that way, in North America. This is a strange time we live in that I think about 50 years from now, people are going to look back and have some of the harshest critiques about how much privilege Christians lived with. Because, like, not everybody wants to hear what you have to say. And the assumption that you think people want to hear what you have to say is more detrimental than helpful. Now, Paul understood that here. So what does Paul do? He goes inside and he what? Sits down until he's asked to say something. And when he's asked to say something, he's asked for what? To give a word of what? Encouragement. Not of critique, of encouragement. And so then he stands up. Here's the first observation I would say. Don't speak until you're invited. Let's not assume we get to say what we want when we want. Maybe our Instagram feeds and our Twitter feeds isn't just my own personal thing that I want to do. People are watching. And I don't mean like you need to be so afraid of people, but I mean let's just not assume that we throw out there is what really needs to be thrown out there. I think we could use a little more self-awareness and humility of how we're coming across with our faith. And I think the other side to that, though, is most of us feel like that we have to say something instead of having something to say. Are you with me on that? A lot of times we have this pressure. We think we have to say something. I need to say something here because this person could go to hell as if their eternal like reality rests upon the next thing you say. Man, that's way too much weight on us. As if there's not a God big enough and sovereign enough to go, oh my God, Robin, you missed it. Um, this person's life is now over. And, and nobody's saying that out loud, but we kind of think that at times in this evangelical culture we come out of. And so a lot of times we end up just feeling like that we have to say something instead of having something to say. And I think that's a huge break for us because most of us live out of a shame to say something instead of a freedom that there truly is something in us. We have to capture the moment and make it so big and important and really it ends up being detrimental to people around us. So is that you? Is there a shame pushing out of you having to say something? If you don't say it here, God won't be glorified. God may actually be more glorified through your silence. But I think as well, and this is what we're going to see, I think for a lot of us, I know I can relate to this, we don't have something to say because the gospel has kind of lost its luster. It's lost the shine. And this is the thing we don't want to admit. We don't want to admit that whatever it is that hooked us, it's been really hard to keep us with. Whatever those feelings or that great um, childlike wonder we had when we came into this of salvation, whatever it may be, you find that as you get older, sometimes those things don't stick as well to you. We try to shame ourselves in the reason. That's why there's a danger within our Christianity today that it has to be so reasonable. I need to think myself into the right place, which comes out of psychology of cognitive behavioral therapy. I need to think myself into like this place and that'll be enough. 
which is also why there was a break within the therapy world back in the 70s from CBT to emotional focus therapy, which is what a lot of you probably have experienced today, that there's something about your emotions that you need to get back in touch with those things again because if the gospel does not grip us deep inside, then all we're giving out is something that we have to say instead of having something to say. Are you with me? So we see that we do not speak until we're asked. And then we can have the thing that we feel like we need to say. We can say that now. We have something to say. And this gospel that we have to talk about is big. There's a quote in your bulletin from Rachel Held Evans. It says, the good news is as epic as it gets with universal theological implications, and yet the Bible tells it from the perspective of fishermen and farmers, pregnant ladies and squirmy kids. This story about the nature of God's and God's relationship to humanity smells like mud and manger and hay and tastes like salt and wine. It's the biggest story and the smallest story all at once. The great quest for the one ring and the quiet friendship of Frodo and Sam. Now, here's what I think tends to happen, though, as that Lord of the Rings reference. A lot of us, we have this gospel we think we have to say, but really it, it's lost the friendship piece to it, the piece that feels intimate. And I think that's a thing that we have to recognize because otherwise we end up kind of sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher when we're trying to give people things that we don't fully buy into. So that's the first one. The second one is this. They knew the story they were a part of. Look at verse 20. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Paul understood the story that he was in. And at this place, there were kind of two stories converging. You had a story of Jewish people who had lived under oppression, king after king, empire after empire for thousands of years. And they were always wanting a good, true, and noble king that would come and bring social, economical freedom and restoration to all the things stolen from them. They were looking for a messiah. He also understood that these God-fearing Gentiles were people who had, for the most part, only known a Roman world. There were Greeks before, and these were people of power, and these weren't always good kings either. These are people that they would make you have to do what they had to say. There was always this propaganda that would happen with the new emperor. They would, every new emperor would mint their own coins, and on every coin, they would put a uh, a visual, and it would tell a story of what this emperor wanted to be known by. And it could be that this emperor was a good emperor, this emperor was a strong emperor, but the coins told you something. If you did not get in line with this emperor, you'd be in trouble. And so these people are looking for someone to be in control who is a good king. And Paul understood this, and so he is telling them, hey, this whole king thing that you're looking for where someone who oversees the good of all, this could be true with Jesus. He understood the story he was in. And this is important for us. Um, 
a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre. I'm just going to read it to you because it's simple enough to remember. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part of? So what story are we a part of here as Memphians in 2019? What's the wallpaper in the room? What are the things we need to pay attention to here? Because here's what's important to remember about the gospel. The gospel is contextualized wherever it goes. Think about it. When Jesus shows up, what is he talking about? Is he talking about justification by faith alone? No. He's talking about if you are poor and a whiner and needy, the kingdom is for you. If you're burned out and you feel weighed down, the gospel is for you. And then what does Paul talk about here? To Jewish people, he's talking about a king that could be good to you. And then to these Gentile God-fearers who are always worshiping through a glass wall, they never can get into the synagogues, he's saying to them here that there's a God who brings you in and gives you freedom and lets you be a part of this thing. Like, Paul understood his context. Do we understand our context? Do we understand that there is blood in the soil in the city? And that when we have MLK Day come up, this isn't a day to recognize a good person. This is our history. This is our story. And this is what sticks with us, and we'll keep repeating unless we start learning where did we miss it and where do we go from here. It's in the soil. It's in our city. This is why I tell people, Memphis will either make you bend and bow a knee or it will break you and make you leave. Because it is a difficult city. It's a beautiful city, and yet it's a difficult city. It's why so many have to leave the city. And there's no shame to that, but it is a reality. Because what do you do when you have lots and lots of sirens going off or lots and lots of little crimes, whatever it may be? Well, if you're not careful, you'll just kind of turn it into a whole race game. Instead of realizing maybe there's a privilege game going on. Maybe there's things we haven't paid attention to enough that's in the soil of the city that we need to deal with and address. And maybe the gospel has something to say to those things. So we need to know our story, where we're a part of. We need to know our personal story. Where did you come from? Did you come from a family that idealized everything and life isn't as okay as you think it is? Or do you have a family that you came from that shamed you into everything you did? Like, what kind of background do you have personally? See, the gospel meets us contextually wherever we are. That's why we can't sum it up in a chick track or in a $5 fake bill. We have to have more substance to this thing we're talking about. And it starts with understanding the story we're a part of. Number three, they had good news that broke into people's present reality. They had good news that broke into people's present reality. Look at verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. This line here, we tell you the good news. It's a, uh, it's a word, it's, it's the word euangelizo. And you can see, so euangelion is the word gospel. Gospel, good news. Euangelizo means to bring good news. And this is a word particularly used by Paul and Luke. 
It's used more in the book of Acts than anywhere else. This is a really important word because it's a word that you have to be active with. It's gospelizing. It's to gospel something. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the, the way I define it is to announce through declaration and action good news. And this word, euangelizo, would be very familiar to a Greek speaker because it's a word from their history. Because as Romans and Greeks understood, every time a new person came into power, you would send couriers from town to town to euangelizo the good news. And I put good news in quotes because depends on the emperor you got. If you kind of stayed like that emperor, then it was good news for you. But it could be bad news. And the, so, suppose that the story of how this originally looked goes all the way back to 490 BCE when the Persians were taking over the world as we did, right? We, we had a lot of power and influence as Persians. I still, whenever I see Persians in the Bible, I'm like, yes. And then I think, man, we were bad people. But anyway, so all these Persians. And as you know from 300, because that's how we learn history in movies, right? The Spartans stood up to the Persians, okay? Um, and, um, and so the Persians were invading Greece time and time again. And they were coming to this town of Marathon. And so in Athens, they got word of this, and they sent a courier. His name was Phidippidus, and he was a runner. And they said, we need you to go to Sparta to bring more troops down to Marathon to this battle, because we got to win this battle against the Persians. And they, they were such big underdogs. They knew they were going to lose. So he runs. In two days, he runs 150 miles. That's how the story goes. And then finally, at the Battle of Marathon, this huge war, the Greeks win. It was amazing. It was the biggest, like, underdog coming back against the Persians. And the thing is, people were waiting in anticipation because some people would be willing to kill themselves back in Athens and other towns if they knew the Persians won because you didn't want to be underneath their rule. So they sent Phidippides. He ran 25 miles or 20, what is it, 26 miles? Some of you with the stickers on your cars, I see you, right? So 26.2, thank you, sticker. So we have 26.2 miles. He runs 26.2 miles, and he runs into the town of Marathon because it was in an area nearby, 25 miles. And he famously says, Nenekikamen, rejoice we conquer. Rejoice we conquer. And then Phidippides Paul's dead. And that's the story of the first marathon. This person had something to say. Not just that they had to say something. They had something to say. He had something to bring about. He had true news that could literally change a person's reality if they just could hear it. If he just could get it to them, they might go from killing themselves to now finding new life. Because this person, Phidippides, was so convinced of this news he had to take the good news. You know, I think for a lot of us, if you grew up Christian, I know that for me this is true. At some point in time, the gospel went from this thing that was so powerful to just really a play that people would talk about in front of me. Well, that's a nice play. Hamilton, so moving. Yes. Yes, wicked. Oh, my gosh, just those tears cry. But then when you leave the play... The play doesn't leave with you, right? 
Sure, you listen to the soundtracks over and over again, but at some point in time, the power of that play wears off. Are you with me? See, I think for a lot of us, I know for me, this is a play. There's three walls to it. You get to see it all go down. And we come and we get information and we get ideas and we think we got to go back into our worlds and have another play. But any good thespian knows there's a powerful thing called breaking the fourth wall. That if you really, see, there's a wall between the person who's up here acting and then the person who's out here watching. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you remember this movie, right, back in the 80s? It was one of the first to really do this, like, in such an overt way where, you know, Ferris would just look at the camera from time to time and then say something to you, and you're like, whoa. And it was just so mind-blowing for its time. Today, it feels like it happens so often, we get kind of numb to it. But here's what I think happens for many of us that there's a fourth wall that we just kind of live with here on a Sunday and then out in the world around us. And here's what the gospel is. The gospel is breaking through the fourth wall where people are no longer observing something, but now it's a story that they can be a part of. I think the most we tend to offer people is something for them to observe, but not always something for them to be a part of. And the question is why? What is it we're offering that they really don't want to be a part of? What is it we're trying to engage with that they're not engaging with? Why is it we trying to keep giving the world answers to questions they're not asking? What if we started taking the questions the world was asking and then seeing if we had a response to it? Like, the world today, what are the questions they're asking? They're asking, does the gospel, like, address people who are sojourners? and immigrants. Does the gospel address that? Well, does it? Does the gospel address those things? They're asking questions like, for people of different orientations, understandings, does the gospel address that? Like, does the gospel address people's loneliness and wanting to belong? See, I think it has to. Does the gospel address the privilege and the disinherited reality of so many people and where they grew up in these bifurcated worlds? See, those kind of questions the gospel is asking. I'll tell you what people aren't asking is, can I be justified by faith alone in Christ? They're not asking that one. We want them to ask it, but they're not asking that one. Is that the gospel? Yes, it is the gospel. Are you justified by faith alone? Yes, you are. And is the gospel more than that? Yes, it is. And if we ever take one thing and make, and like we get our hammer, everything in the world becomes a nail to us with that one hammer. I think there's places for justification by faith alone. There's places for union with Christ. There's also places for the poor and disinherited and the needy. And if we do not have a robust enough gospel, people don't want to enter into that story. If we don't have a gospel that penetrates our hearts, that people don't want what we're selling. Even Calvin got this 500 years ago. I'll read it to you. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Now, here's where I have to pause and say, I found myself years ago as a preacher and this was no longer true. 
And I, I knew it too. I knew I kept preaching a gospel and getting other people to buy into it that I hadn't bought into. Or maybe I had bought into it, but it wasn't, no, it wasn't like meeting my needs any longer. And it was a very frustrating, lonely process. And here was my biggest question I had. I wanted to know if there was good news for this question. God, I'm lonely. Are you near? That was my question. God, are you lonely? I'm lonely. Are you near? God, I don't, I feel like a faker so many times. Are, are you good with that? God, I, I don't actually don't always know what the Bible's talking about, but I keep talking about like I know what the Bible's talking about. Like, are you going to meet me there? Like, my biggest question was, God, where are you, and will you meet me where I am? And I remember personally, I had hit the end of shaming myself into right, like, living. And I needed a gospel that could meet me, and honestly, it's weird to say it this way, but kind of in my humanity and my feelings or however you want to say it, I needed to know that not there was a God to get to, but a God that came to. And things like that just started escaping me. And there was a several-year stint there. I would just get up and preach Sunday after Sunday with a gospel that had not penetrated the inner recesses of my heart any longer. Is that you? Here's the thing. I think if that's where we are, we'll find that we try to make ourselves do things like, I have to say something. And we wonder why people don't want it. Because it hasn't really gripped us. Because there are other questions you're asking about God now and wondering, is God still good news? Is Jesus still good news? Number four, the gospel was audacious and promised hope. A few verses here. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Are you picking up on that? Decay. And then it says in verse 39, let it be known. I'm doing this to the ESV because I like how it words it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If we're not careful, I think the gospel we offer people tastes and feels more like decay than freedom. And here's your litmus test. Whatever you're giving, not does it taste like decay or freedom to you. My question is, does it taste like decay or freedom to them? There's a good chance that we're giving something to people that actually feels more like decay than freedom. And here's the way you know that you're preaching the gospel. People are getting free. People are finding freedom. People are finding a sense that like, I felt so under bondage with this whatever it is, and now I don't. I felt like this was the cultural reality that controlled my life, and now I sense that things are different. Does it bring decay or does it bring freedom? And just because of our time, I'm going to get to this last one. They had a gospel that embraced the outsider and disrupted the powerful. 
When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Verse 49 says, The war of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standard and the leading men in the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. You know, when they preached this gospel, it's really interesting. Verse 42, it says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. People were begging for this gospel to be talked about again. And I felt so convicted by this. Are people like begging for this message that I'm giving? And if they're not, I think that has something more to do with me than them. I think it's because I don't always know how to talk about Jesus. A Jesus that says, are you tired? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, are you tired, worn out, and burned out in religion? Come to me, and I will give you rest for your weary souls. I will help you recover your life. Does that sound attractive? I think it does. That's why the very first part of our mission statement is becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives. Because until we learn to recover that, people don't really want that. Do you have something that you've recovered that's beautiful and makes sense and not that keeps you within the lines but allows you to interact with this world with such freedom? And here's what we know. When the gospel is preached, powerful people and people who want to keep their, their grip on things get upset. The powerful are disrupted with the gospel. Those who think they got it all mapped out exactly, especially religious folk, get really upset when you start talking about a freedom in Christ. Don't know what to do with it. Freedom in Christ with an asterisk. Freedom in Christ, but. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel penetrates and critiques the things that aren't gospel and culture and says you have to now pay attention to a Jesus just that wild and free like a wild goose. Do we offer that to people? Now, here's how I want to end this. Your answer to these may be no across the board. Maybe, like, maybe you find that you end up saying things more than waiting to be asked because you just have to say something, not something to, like you have something to say. Maybe it's the fact that, like, you, aren't, you don't always know the story and there's not enough courage to even kind of engage it and critique it. Maybe it's that, that there's good news that you don't always know how to break into people's present reality because the good news doesn't feel like it's broken into your reality. Maybe it's the fact that the gospel isn't big enough and audacious to you, so therefore others people don't want it. Or then maybe, just maybe, it's the gospel disrupting more things in your life that we want to hold on to. We don't like those feelings. And I want you to know wherever you are with this, that's okay. What I'm interested in us doing, though, is recovering a big enough, robust enough gospel that the world can interact with and go, I, that seems to hit on where I am. So what does that look like for you? And where has it lost a grip in your life? where you truly aren't really sure if Jesus brings freedom or not, or if he really brings rest or not. And then maybe ask the questions, God, are you big enough to bring that freedom and rest to me? And the good news is we get to come to the table and it starts there. So let's pray and come for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for um, 
Jesus and the good news that the gospel meets us where we are and yet doesn't leave us where we are. And I pray that as we go before your table, I just really sense is the thing that could keep us from so many of this stuff of giving a gospel that is big enough and audacious enough for the world is shame. Maybe it's the shame that we're tired of being motivated by it to come to you and that hasn't worked. Maybe it's, maybe it's feeling shame because we just feel like these are a bunch of rules and we can't get them all right. It's a shame maybe of losing that sense of intimacy with you. I don't know whatever the shame may be, but I pray right now, whatever that shame is that would bind us this morning, individually and corporately, you would free us from that. And you would allow us to come partake of your table and find true freedom. The kind of freedom that we walk away not having to say something, but we have something to say. Willing to meet people where they are, to engage the questions they're asking, and to trust that there is a God on the other side who is with us in it all. So we ask these things and thank you that we find that first and foremost at your table. In your name we pray. Amen.